Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. I am also the architect behind the MMA Fight Archive, where we are closing in on 3,000 fighter profiles, all available to you to make sure you leave no stone unturned when you're researching all these upcoming MMA events, not just the UFC, but this week alone, we got Unified MMA, we got uh, UAE Warriors, two events that they're doing this weekend, and KSW, but a plethora of other great promotions, LFA, ACA, Octagon MMA, which we've added this year as well. Um, You name it, we likely have it on there, which is why there's close to 3,000 fighter profiles on there. You guys can check it out for free. A seven-day free trial is available. If you check out the link in the description below, the MMA Fight Archive is the best spot for cappers, commentators, coaches, fighters, and analysts to have direct links to past fights for all of these fighters so they can make their researching duties a lot easier. Once again, a seven-day free trial available. Check the link in the description below. Big UFC fight week this week. We got UFC 297 going down in my hometown of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I guess I'm just outside of Toronto, but regardless, still close enough. I like to rep Toronto regardless. Uh, UFC 297, two title fights in the main event. Obviously, we got Sean Strickland defending his middleweight title for the first time after defeating Israel Adesanya late last year. He takes on Drikus Duplessis this weekend. Very fun fight there. Close-ish odds, so I can't wait to break that down for you guys. And then in the co-main event, we have a vacant title on the line. The women's bantamweight title is up for grabs as Amanda Nunes retired a couple months back. And now Raquel Pennington and Myra Bueno. Silva will be looking to settle the score and see who can leave Toronto with the gold belt wrapped around their waist. A ton of other great fights on the card as well. Mike Malott taking on Neil Magny, his first legitimate UFC veteran. We got Movzer Evluev going up against Arnold Allen in a high-stakes featherweight bout between two ranked opponents and a ton of other great fights like I spoke about. Not only that, obviously big fight week pay-per-view week we're in toronto there is a regional show the day before unified mma 55 probably the premier organization in canada in terms of producing talent and letting them go to the next level and just to up the stakes even more dana white has announced that he's going to be doing a looking for a fight episode at unified so he will be live there as well i believe the tickets are already sold out but they did recently release standing room only tickets if those are still available try to cop them if you're in the toronto area unified puts on a great product i was there last time around for unified mma 49 i believe the number was uh back in december of 2022 uh very fun uh card um they did a great job with the production probably the best production i've ever seen for a non-ufc fight card taking place in ontario RIP to score fighting series, which probably was the runner-up at the time. They were doing phenomenal shows as well, uh, but that was back in the day. I'm aging myself at this point in time, but Unified, probably the premier organization in Canada right now. Like I said, they're doing their show at Rebel Nightclub the night before UFC 297. All right. Uh, Now that we got that out of the way, let's get into a a quick recap of the last UFC card in terms of predictions, specifically the lock of the night and dog of the night performances. Lock of the night, Joshua Van comes through after a slow start in round one, turns up the pressure in round two and finishes Felipe Bunes 
beautiful finish there. Just a phenomenal talent that we have on our hands with Joshua Van. This kid is only 22 years old, and the guy is already 3-0 in the UFC. I believe it's been less than a year since he's been employed with the UFC, and he's just putting on amazing performance after amazing performance. So look to uh, see him continue to fly up the flyweight rankings, especially with whoever they match him up with next. On the LFA scene, we also hit our lock of the night player with Cheyenne Bowers, a little bit chalky there, but I felt she had Whitney Powell's beat pretty much everywhere in that matchup, and I believe she got the first round finish. Easy work there. We go 2-0 on the weekend, and obviously we're resetting the lock of the night standings after last year, like I already went over it with the last podcast. I think we went 101-36, and I believe it was the record. China hit that 80% hit rate this year again, or close. Last year we hit 75%. This year we're hoping for 80% to try to improve on it. But good start to the year, 2-0 on lock of the night predictions. Dog of the night, not so much. We go 0-2. Gaston Bolaños uh, fails as the dog of the night. I knew I should have put Preston Parsons as my dog of the night as he was another underdog play that I had on the card. But I gave Bolaños the, uh, the the moniker of dog of the night considering I believed his striking would be a little bit better than McGee's but it seemed like he was moving in sand. So on very unfortunate performance there from Bolaños and he gets finished by Marcus McGee. Uh, and then on the yellow face scene, another unfortunate run there with a Will John. Johnson coming up short against Alvin Hines. Um, I thought Johnson would be a little bit more competitive in the grappling realm so that he can eventually find that big knockout power uh, later on in that first round, but that did not transpire. He got finished in the second round. So uh, 0 of 2 on Dog of the Night uh, performances. We did hit Preston Parsons, but not as a Dog of the Night uh, title. Regardless, 0 and 2, not a good start for the Dogs, but we'll try to turn that around this week. Getting over to uh, just a reminding folks about the new Patreon content that we've been dropping as well. The Parlay Party, the suggested same game parlays, and Quick Picks, which will be debuting this week in the form of KSW90. KSW, I believe, goes down on Friday, and I'll be dropping Quick Picks strictly for the Patreon folks. So if you want uh, any action on the KSW uh, fights, Check out the Patreon. You'll be able to get it there. I also cover ACA and Octagon in the form of Quick Picks. And then obviously full card breakdowns for LFA and Cage Warriors, if that's what you're looking for. And then lastly, the UFC Fight Forecast is another new feature this year on the Patreon page where I have the entire UFC schedule written out and my early predictions for every single one of those matchups so I don't have to have people in my DMs asking me, who you got for this? Even though the card is two months away, I haven't gotten around to researching it yet, but I now I have this giant sheet that I just have my early predictions already pointed out. So if you guys want to take a look at that, you can find that on the Patreon page as well. Again, do not get the uh, Lock of the Night Patreon page and the MMA Fight Archive Patreon page mixed up. I have them clearly stated in the description below, so don't get them mixed up depending on what you're looking to to get into. Uh, and then lastly, obviously, the Lockheed Two-Step and Lockheed Trinity free parlay normally drops on Thursday evenings for the public, but Patreon folks get first, asked, first access to that, and I'll be dropping today on that. So if you want to get early access to that, again, check out the Patreon page for that. And lastly, shout out to Godzilla Wins, giving your boy a platform to drop written content on a weekly basis on Wednesdays we drop the main event breakdown and then on Thursdays we drop the three best money line spots if you're looking for any of that stuff again links for those will be in the description once they have been posted so if you're watching this on Friday check the link in the description you can get uh, uh, you can look at those for free Godzilla Wins is a great publication where we have not just the UFC but 
all the other sports, NFL, NBA, NHL, it all got you covered. Check those guys out as well, GodzillaWins.com. All right, that's enough plugs, wouldn't you say? Let's get right into the breakdowns. we got a ton of fights to get through here for UFC 279, and we are going to start in the flyweight division where we got Malcolm X Gordon going up against Jimmy Flick. Now, this is a closely lined fight with minus 135 on Gordon, plus 115 on Jimmy Flick. But this is a perfect matchup for both of these guys. First, let's start off on the Malcolm Gordon side and things, who's on a two-fight losing streak. But shout out to Malcolm Gordon. Knowing that he's probably not at the level of some of these guys, he's still going out there and taking killer after killer. Malcolm, or sorry, uh, fighting uh, Mohamed Makhayev and then Jake Hadley back-to-back. He got finished in both of those fights and pretty quickly last time around against Jake Hadley. But the fact that he's willing to go to these guys' backyards and fight them impressive but Gordon uh, has been very flaky obviously he has two wins in the UFC over Francisco Figueiredo where he pulled off a massive upset that night and even another big upset against Dennis Bondera in a fight where he uh, injured the arm or Bondera I believe he uh, dislocated his uh, elbow or something like that and was able to pick up the TKO victory Gordon is known for his BJJ black belt and he's kind of slick on the mat with his ability to control his opponents and look for finishes but on the feet it's a completely different story as he gets pieced up more often than not uh, his his durability is very questionable. We've seen him get finished time and time again. He needs to get fights to the ground for him to have success. I've been watching this guy since his regional days as he competed on a card that I actually worked for way back in the day. And I didn't think he really had the chops to make it to the UFC. But credit to them, uh, credit to him and his team for getting him here. It's just the question of how much longer is he going to be able to stay at this level especially at 33 years old and especially with some of the skill discrepancies that he's going to face with some of the opponents that he goes up against luckily for him his opponent this weekend Jimmy Flick is similar to him in the fact that he has almost no striking game all you see from Jimmy Flick is the fact that he loves to crash the pocket at times with kicks try to stay at distance and just manage his range until he's able to change levels look for a takedown and get to his crafty and smothering jujitsu game he's one of the best fighters from that top position in terms of not giving his opponent an inch in terms of looking to create space so they can pull off a reversal submission or a get up which is why he's so dangerous when he's able to establish that jujitsu game it's just that his striking leaves so much room for improvement that it's hard for him to create opportunities for him to get fights to the ground once he does get fights to the ground, that's where you see him pulling off submissions like he did against Nate Smith. That beautiful flying uh, triangle, I believe it was, against Cody Durden in his UFC debut. The guy has it all, but he's been all falling on hard times, obviously. Finished in his last two matchups against Charles Johnson and Alessandro Costa. This is a matchup made for both of these guys to go out there and hopefully save themselves a UFC roster spot, considering that a three-fight losing streak usually means the end of their UFC stint. I'm actually going to lean with the underdog ever so slightly here with Jimmy Flick. I don't think that Gordon provides enough issues on the feet for Flick. And I think it's just a matter of time before this fight hits the mat. And even though Gordon might think he he has the advantage there, I think Flick is a little bit too crafty for him. And I feel Flick should be able to get the better of him on the mat. I think at a certain point, this fight will finish by submission. And I think it's going to come at the hands of Jimmy Flick finding a choke or an armbar of some sort. And I think it probably comes within the first two rounds or so. Jimmy Flick, plus 110 yesterday, plus 115 today. If more money continues to come in on Gordon, I think that's even more opportunity for you to go out there and take advantage of the underdog who should be able to get his hand raised once again by submission. All right, moving over to the women's flyweight division. Now we got Jasmine Jazz Duvisius coming in as a minus 370 favorite. She goes up against Priscilla Cachuera, who comes in at plus 295. 
Now, this fight was put together on somewhat short notice as Jasmine was really banging the drum to get onto this Toronto card, which makes sense considering that almost every time she wins a fight, she seems to call out the fact that the UFC needs to come back to Toronto. And can you blame her? It's been over five years that the UFC has touched down in Canada as the last event actually took place in December of 2018 that night. We saw Max Holloway batter Brian Ortega en route to a round four slash round five finish. But glad the UFC is finally back in town. And it's great that a fighter like Jazz Duvicius gets a spot on this card. Now, she lost her last matchup, which was the biggest fight of her career. Let's cut her some slack there, where she took a massive step up in competition and took on Tracy Cortez. Cortez just had a little bit more oomph that night and was able to get the better of the striking and the grappling so that she was able to get her hand raised. But the fight before that for Jazz Duvicius was an eye-opener for a lot of fighters. She pulled off a big upset over Miranda Maverick and showcased that her wrestling is something that a lot of people need to take seriously she trains out of niagara top team which is one of the premier gyms in canada now and might be the biggest gym in canada and probably taking over tristar considering tristar does not produce as many prospects as they used to one thing that Niagara top team is known for as their head coach has a wrestling background is their wrestling and you can see that on display when whenever Jazz Duvicius fights. She's great in scrambles. She always finds a way to end up on top and she has great control from that top position where she can damage her opponents and grind them out to decision victories. Her striking still needs a little bit of work but I like the way she's able to blend her wrestling behind her striking so that she can get the takedowns and do work from that top position. Her opponent this weekend Priscilla Cachuera is looking to bounce back after getting some Submitted by Miranda Maverick a couple months back. Now, Cachoeira is one of those fighters that's been looking to try to change the trajectory of her career after changing gyms and teaming up with MMA Masters. And I believe she's 2-1 now with that gym now. But I still don't think that it's enough for her to go out there and fully transform herself. She's 35 years old. We know her striking style is just stalk her opponent, move forward, and look to knock them out. But if she is unable to defend takedowns and her opponents can get her there, she's usually defenseless and is unable to get back to her feet unless she looks to rake the eyes of her opponents like she did against Jillian Robertson, who still ended up getting the submission victory that night. In this matchup, I fully expect Jazz Davisius to have no trouble getting this fight to the mat, and then it all d d depends on, will the fighter that normally does not get finishes be dominant enough on the mat that she can actually get a finish in the spot. I'm not 100% sold on that aspect, as I still do think that we'll see enough resistance from Cashaware on the mat that Jazz Davisius will have to grind this fight out and likely pick up a decision victory. Her money line at minus 370 might be a little bit chalky for people that don't normally don't like to wager on uh, women's MMA fights, but I feel like the advantage is so far in Jazz Davisius' favor for this matchup that I might as well just throw into a parlay. I feel like this is a shoe-in spot for the night in terms of her going out there and just being dominant with her wrestling. So give me Jazz Davisius and Jazz Davisius by decision. Next up in the welterweight division, we got Johan Langness coming in as a minus 140 favorite going up against Sam Patterson, who comes in at plus 120. Now, Langness has dropped his last two of three fights as he's now one and two in the UFC. But last time around, he was unable to deal with the grappling advantage that Mike Malott held in that matchup. Lanus is normally a fighter that likes to go out there and take his opponent's head off. He is a very strong power puncher, and that's what made his name so important or significant on the regional scene and why he was able to pick up a couple titles on the regional scene, including that contender series victory that earned him his UFC contract. However, we saw an un lanus like win when he did pick up his lone UFC win over Darian Weeks, where he showed a tepid pace striking approach, utilizing kicks and slow damage from outside to outwork the control 
control and clinch time that Weeks was trying to accrue that night. However, Lanus is a guy just waiting to crack his opponents and looking to just uncover what was so special about him on the regional scene. But I think that's going to get harder and harder for him to do as he continues to take steps up in competition, especially at this level. His opponent this weekend, Sam Patterson, is looking to rebound from one of the more devastating knockouts that we witnessed in 2023. Back in March of 23, we saw Yanel Ashmus crash the pocket with overhand rights to uh, drop Sam Patterson and he followed up with a couple of big ground and pound shots that put Patterson on Pluto as we saw Patterson trying to get his wits back about him but still thinking that he was in a fight as Mark Goddard was trying to get him to sit down. Patterson until that point in time was a guy that had very good striking defense was able to keep his opponents at bay utilize his 78 inch reach at welterweight to keep opponents at distance using kicks snap kicks up the middle long punches down the pipe and great footwork to stay away from his opponents he also has a very nasty choke game and he's a brazilian jiu-jitsu brown belt this guy has had so many fights where he's been able to punch opponents into desperation takedowns and then he snatches up their neck and takes it on home with him. He's very dangerous, but I think a lot of people are going to be overlooking him this weekend considering the the severity of the knockout that he suffered to Ash Moose back in March. However, with over t- 10 months out of the cage at this point in time, I think that's more than enough time for him to recover. And at 27 years old, his chin could show like it never was damaged in the past. That's absolutely a possibility. Now, in terms of this fight, that's where we run into some issues. It's tough to bet on a guy that got knocked out as badly as Patterson against a power puncher like Johan Langness. And I think a lot of people are just going to draw the immediate conclusion that Langness is going to once again send him to Pluto. But if he doesn't, Patterson is the better fighter here. Patterson's the better, cleaner striker. Patterson has a better ground game, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Patterson try to change levels and look to take this to the ground where he can possibly strangle and finish Lanus with the submission. And if the line continues to climb, if we get Patterson closer to plus 150, it's going to get hard to persuade me not to risk a little bit on Patterson here and even take a sprinkle on his submission prop to hopefully bank on him to win this fight. Again, Lanus is a solid striker, power puncher, but in terms of actual skills, raw skills, I think Patterson's the better fighter here. So I'm going to go with Patterson. I think Patterson wins this fight likely by submission. Taking the fight doesn't go to decision, not a bad way to go about it, which is likely going to be chalky as hell. But I think no matter who ends up winning this matchup, it's going to be by finish, and I'm going to go with Sam Patterson to win by submission. Moving on to the women's strawweight division now. We got Jillian Robertson coming in at minus 230. She goes up against fellow grappler Pollyanna Vienna at plus 195. Now, Jillian Robertson is looking to bounce back from her loss to Tabitha Ricci in a matchup that she got completely outstruck on the feet. Now, we know Jillian Robertson is a fighter that likes to take fights to the ground and utilize her slick and lethal BJJ game to snatch necks and cash checks, as she has said in the past. Another thing that she has said in the past which is why I respect her so much, is that she is a submission over position type of BJJ player. You often find people in the UFC game trying to utilize the opposite. They want to establish position and just stick with position rather than searching for finishes. Robertson's not like that at all. She's looking for finishes. She's looking for performance bonuses. And even though she only has a 12-8 and record with nothing longer than a two-fight winning streak in her professional career, she still finds a way to stay in the UFC and continue this longevity in terms of just continuously fighting getting three four fights a year uh and avoiding an extended losing streak to hold on to her ufc position and i think that's why the ufc enjoys her so much she's all action all the time 
Unfortunately, her striking leaves a lot to be desired, which is why sometimes opponents are able to stuff her takedowns and then just batter her on the feet just the way Tabitha Ricci and JJ Aldrich were able to do. Her opponent this weekend, Poliana Vienna, is looking to bounce back from her own loss to Yasmin Lucindo, who was able to snatch up an arm triangle choke in the second round and get the finish. Vienna is a BJJ first player who throws very recklessly on the feet, which has benefited her in the past, most notably on the regional scene where she was able to get a knockout victory over Amanda Hibas. However, in the UFC, it's not working out as well. She's f- suffered losses to Tabitha Ricci and Yasmin Lucindo, which aren't bad losses considering the level of competition those fighters are. But we know that Vienna needs to snatch up a submission of some sort or land some sort of Hail Mary knockout for her to end up getting her hand raised. The way these two fighters match up is the fact that Robertson likely is the better wrestler here. Mixing the fact that Vienna has horrible takedown defense, I fully expect Robertson to drag this fight to the ground and utilize her superior jiu-jitsu to control top position and then eventually open up a submission opportunity where she can eventually sink in that choke or that armbar, whatever it might be, and take that on home with her. Vienna relies too much on her guard off of her back, and I think Robertson has a good enough jiu-jitsu game to stay out of any submission threat that Vienna throws at her and I think it's just a matter of time once this fight does hit the mat that Robertson can get to a safer position like half guard or side control where she can eventually work to a more dominant position and sink in a submission victory so give me Robertson again chalky under two and a half is another spot that I really like which I saw around minus 140 waiting for that to be a little bit more widely available before I take a shot on it publicly tracked but I do like violence in this spot no matter who ends up winning I do think it ends up being the Canadian defending her home soil and winning by submission moving over to the bantamweight we got another Canadian looking to defend home soil where we got a rematch between Siri City who comes in at minus 180 and Ramon Tavares who comes in at plus 155 now City is a fighter that I've been hearing about for a long time now in the regional scene up in my neck of the woods this kid has the BFL title, which is actually a Vancouver-based promotion or BC-based promotion, and he's been continuously going out there and defending his title time and time again against legitimate contenders as well. Uh, he is a striker first, and his ground game is definitely improving, and that was the reasoning for the lone loss that he has in his 11-fight MMA career, where he ended up getting uh, controlled, I believe finished as well, by Matteo Vogel, who's actually headlining the unified MMA card the day before this event. Vogel is a guy that probably could earn himself a spot on the UFC roster. So that loss in hindsight does not end up looking too bad. But CD has clearly improved his defensive grappling, especially working with the Niagara top team guys, which is known for wrestling. He should be able to keep fights upright for the most part and utilize his superior striking to touch up his opponents and more often than not find the finish. His opponent this weekend is no stranger to finishes either as Ramon Tavares earned his UFC contract through the Contender Series by knocking out Cortavius Romius in less than a minute. That was a horrible game plan by Romius to go out there and just swing leather with a guy that was likely the better striker that night. Now, obviously, the elephant in the room here between the two is the fact that these two guys fought each other on the contender series, but the fight was stopped due to a premature stoppage by the referee, Kevin McDonald, who did not give Tavares enough chance to try to fight back into the fight. City credit all to him. He landed a perfect counter to put Tavares on his back, and he followed up with a couple of hammer strikes, but I do believe that was a quick stoppage no disrespect to City. He did what he needed to do, got his contract, and the UFC uh, obviously rewarded him the contract. But to run this rematch back again completely makes sense to me. Both guys are strikers. Both guys have a ton of power in their hand. But I think that it was just a matter of time before City showcased that he was the superior striker and whether it was going to be a 
quick stoppage or not, I think it was just a matter of time before City was going to be able to find that chin of Tavares. So give me City once again. I think as long as he can stay safe, we saw him eat a couple shots from Tavares, not even flinch, continue to stick with his game plan, and eventually pulled off his own knockout victory. I expect him to run the same script once again. Give me City and City by knockout. Next up in the featherweight division, one of the most entertaining Canadians that we currently have on the UFC roster. We got Charles Jourdain coming in as a minus 180 favorite as he takes on the lengthy and lanky Sean Woodson who comes in at plus 155. We'll start off on the Charles Jourdain side, who's on a two-fight winning streak right now, with his last win being a very impressive one where he submitted BJJ black belt Hikardo Hamosh with a beautiful guillotine. Now, that guillotine is very important considering that Jordan has added that to his arsenal over the last couple of fights, which usually scares opponents off from trying to take him down. We saw a couple of fighters, especially Lando Venata, who has caught himself in that guillotine. And that's what the type of defensive approach that Jordan is taking now with his defensive grappling, considering that most opponents want to take him to the ground and avoid that unorthodox power striking style that he normally has. We saw Shane Burgos and Nathaniel Wood do it successfully. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that fighters can still get away with that but doing it against a guy like Hikaru Hamos very very impressive in my opinion I've been a fan of Jordan forever uh, again if you are a long time viewer of the show you know I say this story pretty much every time I break down a Jordan fight I covered this guy all the way back from his amateur days in uh, Montreal fighting on a native reserve the kid was special from jump even his brother Louis who unfortunately had to pull out of his fight um, from the unified fight that was supposed to take place the day before this but Jordan very fun fighter. Uh, you know, I think he'll have a permanent spot on the UFC roster considering that he is just so entertaining all the time. The UFC will likely give him favorable matchups if he's ever on a losing streak so that he can get back to his winning ways and save his UFC spot. Uh, but a very fun fighter, a decent power in his hands. But the flaw in his game in the past has been uh, guys that are mo- way more technically better than him uh, in the striking or grappling realms. And he might be facing that this weekend in a guy in Sean Woodson who uh, is looking to continue his unbeaten streak. Uh, he's 3-0-1 over his last four fights, with his last win being a dominant victory over Dennis Bazukia, where he actually showed off some of his grappling chops. But Standing at six foot two with a 78-inch reach for a featherweight should be an absolute crime. But Sean Woodson has yet to miss weight in uh, 12 of his professional MMA fights to date and can't say anything about that if he's continuously making weight. But he does a great job in utilizing his boxing background to keep opponents at bay with his slick shots down the pipe and even throwing in a teep kick every now and then. But what makes him so special is the fact that he does great work with his footwork, staying at distance, and just using that jab to keep his opponents at bay and just usually not taking too much damage in, the, uh, in return. His fight against Luis Aldana is the most trouble we've ever seen him in other than when Julian Rosa was able to submit him in the third round of their matchup. We saw uh, Saldana drop Woodson a couple of times in that first round and even though with a point deduction from Saldana who landed in a legal knee uh, when he was close to finishing Woodson, uh, Woodson still matched to battle back in the final two rounds and say what you want about the decision, he still managed to battle uh, it out and get a draw in that fight after looking so bad in that first round. But we saw him get back to his 
those winning ways uh, against Bazookia look like the classic Woodson that we're used to. And that's going to be important in this matchup against Jordan as he'll likely have to keep Jordan a distance. I'd be very surprised to see Woodson try to shoot in this matchup. I don't think his grappling is good enough to fend off any of the aggressive jiu-jitsu that we'll see from the Jordan side. And I think that we'll see Woodson jab his way to a victory in the spot. Again, his chin could be a little bit suspect, but the, the sheer metrics in this fight are, are mind-blowing. Well, when you see these guys stare down, I think we'll see a little bit of action come in on Woodson to bring that number back down. But you're talking about a 5-inch height advantage and a 9-inch reach advantage. Of course, Jordan's unorthodox striking approach and uh, you know his spinning stuff, flying stuff, could allow him to crash that pocket a little bit more effectively. But like the guys that have been able to touch up Sean Woodson did not have that much of a... Um, uh, a disadvantage to overcome. You know, Julian Rosa is a lanky guy himself. Luis Aldana on the lankier side as well for this featherweight division. So Jordan, Jordan has a lot of no man's land to cover before he's able to get to Woodson. And uh, to get Woodson around that plus 155 range, I think it's worth a shot. I think that him being the better technical striker here, and if he can just stick with that jab, stay on the outside, uh, use his kicks up the middle to keep Jordan at bay, it's possible. And don't get me wrong, Jordan will likely crack him one or two times throughout this matchup, maybe a handful of times. But I think that we'll see uh, Woodson do a good enough job in terms of rolling with it, staying away from the brunt of those shots, and then just sticking with the game plan and out-voluming Jordan from distance. So give me Woodson to win this fight on the scorecards. Hurts for me to say that, especially for a guy trying to defend his home turf and somebody that I like as much as Jordan. But I think Woodson is the better technical striker here. And uh, I, I don't think, uh, last point about this, I don't think that Jordan could successfully take a grapple-heavy approach in this matchup either. I think he's had 12 UFC matchups. He's only completed one takedown. And he has, uh, completes them at a 16% clip. Not a good look. I think Woodson wins this fight, jabs his way to a decision victory. All right. Moving over to the bantamweight division, we got Brad Katona looking to take his first matchup after winning the Ultimate Fighter over Cody Gibson in a fight of the year candidate. He comes in as a minus 180 favorite against Garrett Armfield, who comes in at plus 155. Now, touching on Brad Katona once again, he had one of the greatest fights we've ever seen as him and Cody Gibson combined for nearly 320 strikes landed, significant strikes landed, as they absolutely went to war from the first bell to the last bell. But it was Brad Katona who had pivotal moments in the second and third round to get his hand raised by decision that night. Luckily, the fight was good enough that the UFC decided to award both of the guys with contracts, and Cody Gibson now makes his uh, UFC second UFC debut, I guess you can say, his return to the UFC a couple in, in a few months. But Brad Katona, uh, impressive record, 13-2. and two. His only losses came in his last two fights with the UFC where he lost to Marab Davalishvili, which we can give him a pass on now, and uh, Hunter Azure, who is not a bad fighter in his own right either. But Katona, very, very solid fighter. This guy, uh, high fight IQ, even though it looks like he has a few screws loose, this guy can crash the pocket with good power, does a great job in the clinch and with his wrestling. And he showcased, even in the Cody Gibson fight, if he can't get his wrestling going, he can settle comfortably enough in the striking realm to still be competitive and still get his hand raised. Uh, at 32 years old with that 13-2 and record, keep your eye on Katona, man. If this guy can keep up this level of... Uh, 
success, it's going to be tough to, to, to overcome him. He fought some solid competition even after getting cut from the UFC. He went 4-0 on the Brave CF scene, picked up their title as well, their bantamweight title, and then eventually earned his way back onto the Ultimate Fighter, and now here he is back in the UFC. Keep an eye on him. Very, very solid fighter. Uh, his opponent this weekend, Garrett Armfield, is coming off of a beautiful knockout victory over Toshiomi Kazama uh, a couple months back. That was a fight where he had a significant striking advantage and had a clear wrestling advantage, which allowed him to keep the fight upright, stuff all of the takedown attempts of Kazama, and then batter him on the feet with power strikes. Before that, we saw him lose his short notice UFC debut up a weight class against David Onama. But this guy is a guy that, is, that has some solid potential and a high ceiling as well. He's only 27 years old and he's fully comfortable now at his new training setting of Marathon MMA which is kind of the um, I guess picking up the scraps of Glory MMA a lot of those guys that had to leave Glory due to the whole Kraus situation uh, are now calling Marathon MMA home and one of Garrett Armfield's main training partners is Miles Chapo Johns uh, who used to be a Fortis MMA guy was briefly a Glory MMA guy and now a Marathon MMA guy which is headed by UFC fighter uh, Trey Ogden uh Solid training, solid preparation. Uh, he's a good wrestler. His striking is definitely improving. I feel like it might be a little bit over-exaggerated considering the, the amount of advantage he had over Kazama, which might blind a little bit of people in terms of thinking that he's a better striker than he actually is. Uh, he had nothing to worry about on the way back or uh, coming back at him in terms of resistance in the striking realm against uh, Kazama. So he could just flow freely and just let his strikes go. Uh, now, in terms of how he matches up with Katona, this this is a interesting matchup. Uh, Katona has a huge amount of experience advantage over him, and I don't mean in terms of fights because Katona fifteen fights, Armfield twelve fights, only a three fight advantage. But it's the actual level of experience that he's been facing. Our Katona, you know, Rob Davalashvili, Hunter Azure, Cody Gibson, even the guys he was fighting on the Brave CF scene, absolutely squashed the majority of fighters that Garrett Armfield has been facing on his way to the UFC. Uh, Armfield could have the raw wrestling advantage here which could turn this into a striking battle and we've seen that Katona can hold his own in the striking realm no matter who he's going up against so it just comes down to will Katona look to set a pace will Katona be able to devise a good enough game plan and utilize his superior fight IQ to overcome the youngster Garrett Armfield I think he can I think we'll see a better body of work from Katona I don't think that we'll see him completely rely on the wrestling here but I think he can blend it well enough behind his striking to catch Garrett Armfield uh, uh, by surprise you know I think Armfield um, he's going to be surprised by the pace that Katona will be able to set now I don't think that this is going to be a Katona um, Gibson type of pace they're not going to land 300 significant strikes uh, combined that's not what's going to happen here as I think that Kona, Katona kind of just agreed with the pace that Gibson was setting and then he matched him and obviously beat him but I think that we'll see uh, Katona give Armfield a lot of different looks give Armfield things that uh, he's not comfortable with and I think that will allow Katona to just you know, outpoint him, outwork him, make it look better for the judges, maybe a little bit of hometown advantage uh, or a home country advantage sprinkled in as well. I think Atona comes out on the winning end here and gets his hand raised by decision. Don't count out Armfield completely though. The kid looks impressive. The kid looks like he has a ton of potential and this might be the opportunity that he needed to showcase to the world that he's ready for this level of competition and fighting better and better guys. They just need the opportunity to show out. This could be it. But I'm still going to take Atona to win this fight, and I think he wins it by decision. All right, moving over to the main card. Very fun main card that we have here. First fight up is going to be a featherweight fight between two top-ranked featherweights. 
We got Arnold Allen coming in as a plus 155 underdog, and his opponent Movzar Ivloyev coming in at minus 180. We'll start off on the Arnold Allen side, who suffered his first UFC loss in 10 fights. I believe it's been eight years since he's been in the UFC, but he's only had 10 fights, not fighting more than once a year in seven of those years. Um, crazy, crazy that he's uh, been around as long as he has, but just not competing as much as he has. Last time for Allen was a big spot for him as he took on Max Holloway in a main event slot. And unfortunately for him, came up short against Holloway, who was able to outvolume him nearly by double the amount of strikes and just take it to a decision and win a uh, unanimous decision victory. Allen is normally a low output fighter that likes to put uh, strikes together when he sees openings, but not often enough. However, it's worked out for him up until that Calvin Cater fight, or sorry, the Max Holloway fight, which makes you wonder like, okay, maybe he doesn't need to change his style. Maybe his power is good enough to touch up these guys in pivotal moments for him to still go out there and win decisions like he did against Sadiq Youssef. He's not normally a guy that knocks opponents out. Obviously, the Dan Hooker one being a uh, contradiction of that statement. But he is a guy that relies on power to hurt his opponents and intimidate his opponents to kind of keep them from trying to throw as much as they normally do. Uh, Allen, uh, he's going to be... Well, I'll talk about the takedown defense when we get to the actual prediction aspect of this. Let's quickly move on over to Movzer Ivluev, who has a very impressive 17-0 record as a 29-year-old. Last time around, we saw him face a little bit more adversity than people expected when he up against rising contender Diego Lopez. He found himself in a total of four official submission attempts from Lopez, but he showcased his poise, discipline, and technical approach by waiting out those submission attempts and working out of them, getting to the dominant position and getting back to the work that he is mainly known for. I believe he got eight and a half minutes of control time that night. But what's been most impressive about his rise to the contenders uh, and the rankings is the the fact that his striking is getting much better as well with the amount of work that he's been doing down there at American Top Team. He came into the UFC mainly as a grappler, but his striking has gotten so much better that he doesn't require to mainly lean on wrestling to get his wins. He's fine to go out there and strike with his opponents and still come out on the winning end due to, due to the output, volume, and cardio that he showcases on a nightly basis. This guy is a contender and possible title uh, challenger in this year, depending on how this fight goes, maybe even next year, and how active the featherweight champion stays. But Ivloyev is a very talented fighter who's just been waiting for his opportunity to crack into that top five. Now, this is a big-time matchup against Arnold Allen, who was pretty much in a number one contender fight last time around against Max Holloway. But the big talking point this week is going to be the takedown defense of Arnold Allen. Now, Alan, let me get the actual numbers here. Uh, so through his first several fights, let me just pull this up real quick. Um, yeah, so Alan, through his first U four UFC fights, was taken down a total of 12 <clears throat> times. Had some close fights in there. The split decision loss to, or split decision win against Amir Khani. Close fight probably didn't deserve to be a split, but still close enough that one of those judges gave it to Amir Khani. But then since the Mads Burnell fight, his next seven opponents are 0-14 on takedown attempts. The inter interesting thing to note of that, though, is those 14 takedown attempts only came from the first three opponents after Mads Burnell. Nine of those takedown attempts came from Nick Lentz, who is a decent takedown specialist takedown wrestler but not of the level of Movzar Ivluev who is obviously way higher level than Nick Lentz especially at this point in their careers 
And that I think that completely wipes out the 0-14 takedown defense run that Arnold Allen is currently on. Now, I'm not saying that Allen won't be able to defend any takedowns. I expect him to showcase some of his takedown defense chops earlier on in this fight. But even if Evloev does not land takedowns, I think his volume and output advantage here will still be enough for him to go out there and get a win on the scorecards if this ends up being a striking battle over 15 minutes. Unless Allen lands multiple takedowns or multiple knockdowns over several rounds or multiple rounds. Or uh, if he knocks out Evloev possible with the amount of power that he has but i think that evil web is a good enough fighter that he can keep uh alan you know on the defensive keep him reacting to whatever he's doing and then mixing in takedowns behind that even if he doesn't complete them will keep alan gun shy and won't that will allow evil web to dictate the pace of this fight and utilize his volume heavy approach to win this fight on the scorecards i love evil web in this spot and with mma Obviously, the knockout is obviously possible. That is the ultimate trump card that Allen could lay down here. But I think that Ivluev is skilled enough to avoid the power of Allen. I think he is well-rounded enough that he can mix up his full game to really just combat the low output volume game of Allen. And that should be enough for him to get his hand raised by decision and possibly put him in a number one contender fight. You know, he, he deserves a big fight after this one that could either be a fight night made event or even a number one contender fight and possibly fight for the title at the end of the year. But I got Evloev and Evloev by decision. All right, moving over to the middleweights. We got Chris Action Man Curtis coming in as a minus 170 favorite. He goes up against Marc-Andre Barrio, who comes in at plus 145. Now, Chris Curtis is coming off that unfortunate no contest against Nasruddin Imovov back in September. And that was a fight where it seemed like Curtis was just unable to get started. And it was luckily for him that he got headbutted the way that he did, um, which caused the cut over his eye, caused the fight to be stopped. Um, obviously, unintentional headbutt from Imovov there, but it seemed like that fight was going a certain way. It seemed like Curtis is really not getting comfortable enough at middleweight, fighting these longer and lankier guys who are able to keep him at bay and keep him from the pocket exchanges that has made Chris Curtis so successful in the past. He is now... He should be now 1-3 over his last four fights, but he now is 1-2-1-1-0 and one, no contest. But I think that he needs to go back to welterweight. Then again, at 36 years old, does he really want to be cutting weight? I think the only way that he'll probably go down to welterweight is if he finds himself in a spot where he's on the chopping block. You know, another loss could potentially call the end of his UFC career. So maybe that's when he decides to go back down to welterweight, which is where he spent the majority of his career. He's a power puncher who relies on pocket exchanges to get the best of his opponents, which was the reasons he resulted in the knockout win over Joaquin Buckley in a fight that I thought that he was losing, and even that knockout victory over Brendan Allen, where he forced Allen to exchange in the pocket. Now his opponent, Marc-Andre Berrio, who started his UFC career 0-3, I believe, really turned it around after moving over to Killcliffe FC and has put together a solid run, most recently in his last two fights where he's on a two-fight winning streak, where he got the knockout victory over Julian Marquez and the decision victory over Eric Anders. Marc-Andre is a guy that utilizes pace, pressure, and volume to outwork his opponents and more often than not pick up decision victories. He is capable of finishing opponents late in the third round, just like he did against Abu Azaitar back in 2020. And I think that that's another style that he can implement in this matchup. I don't think he'll be able to finish Curtis, who is very difficult to put away as well. Uh, Berrio, he showcased a solid 
movement, mobile striking game against Eric Anders, who was actually the one pushing the pressure in that fight, or at least the one moving forward the entire time. But Berrio did a good enough job in terms of throwing enough that it outdid the forward movement of Anders, allowing Berrio to get his hand raised by decision. Now, in this matchup, I think Barrio could use utilize a similar type of approach. He'll be having a, I believe it's a two-inch height advantage, two or three-inch height advantage in this matchup. Not, uh, he'll be at a one-inch reach disadvantage, which pretty much is a wash. Uh, but I think that his ability to just be the bigger guy here, stick at distance, utilize his kicks, land a couple shots every now and then, pivot out back into distance, and maybe even mixing in the clinch where I feel like he'll be the stronger guy, that should allow him to put together a better body of work than Chris Curtis here. I think Curtis is reliant on getting a knockout victory to get his win, which is absolutely possible. I think that's why he is the minus 170 favorite in this matchup. But I think he's going to have some trouble doing that against a guy like Barrio, who, again, he's just very active, high pressure, high pace, has a great cardio uh, game as well. That's going to be tough for Curtis to overcome in this spot. So as an underdog, got to go with the guy Barrio here to go out there and put together a better overall body of work to get his hand raised by decision. All right, moving over to the welterweights here. We got a potential passing of the torch matchup here between 36-year-old plus 290 underdog Neil Magny as he takes on Canada's next great hope in terms of being a champion, Mike Malott, who comes in at minus 365. Now, we'll start off on the Magny side, who's been exchanging wins and losses over his last several fights, most recently losing a dominant decision uh, victory for Ian Machado Gary. That was a fight where we saw Magny struggle with the technical striking advantage that Gary was holding, and that's usually the case for Neil Magny. Now, Magny is a guy that I love relying on to pick up underdog victories, right? The, I believe the the Daniel Rodriguez fight, the Phil Rowe fight, very close odds there. Max Griffin fight, very close odds there. Neil Magny picks up the win. There is a two categories of fighters that normally have big success against Neil Magny. One, the archetype of Ian Machado Gary or a Lorenz Larkin, guys that are technically way better strikers and are great kickers. The other is guys that are much better grapplers than Neil Magny. We saw Gilbert Burns and Shavkat Rachmanov finish their fights by submission very easily. Rafael Dos Anjos, a smaller welterweight, was able to get the fight to the ground and get the um, submission victory. It, that's what Malat brings. Malat originally comes from a Muay Thai background, but has improved his grappling so much so that he's going out there and strangling guys left and right. Obviously doing his work with Niagara Top Team and even the experience he had being down at Team Alpha Male, Alpha Male for years and years, this kid is very talented pretty much everywhere. The one qualm that a lot of people have had with him in the past, and it's only resulted in one loss and one draw, is his durability at times. He can be clipped, he can be hurt, and he could possibly be put out as well. But... We've seen such a maturation in his game. He does a great job in terms of staying safe at distance like he did against Johan Lainess and Adam Fugit until he was able to land the takedowns where he is so strong when he gets that double body lock and is able to get that trip to get these guys to the ground and then just get to a submission game. He's so aggressive with getting submissions, but he doesn't overextend so much so that he's giving up a bad position. He does so well in terms of looking for that arm triangle choke. His guillotine is one of the nastiest that we've seen in the game as well. That earned him his uh, UFC contract after he submitted Shimon Smotritsky in less than a minute. This kid is so talented that I'm so happy that he's finally getting the shine that he's getting. And this being the biggest fight of his UFC career against a veteran, a 39-fight veteran like Neil Magny, this could be the coming out party for Mike Malad to really burst into the rankings and look for even higher-ranked opponents after this. I fully expect Mike Malad to play with Magny on the feet a little bit 
eventually drag this fight to the ground and strangle Neil Magny en route to a submission victory. Minus 365 is a little bit wide for a prospect going up against a experienced veteran like Neil Magny, but I think that the grappling advantage that uh, Milot holds in this matchup will allow this fight to look like a uh, cakewalk for, for Mike Milot. So look for Milot to implement his uh, wrestling and look for him to snag up a submission in the first round. Give me Milot by submission. All right, heading over to the co-main event, the first title fight on the docket is the women's bantamweight title, vacant bantamweight title, where we got Raquel Pennington coming in as a plus-135 underdog. She goes up against Myra Bueno Silva, who comes in as a minus-155 favorite. We'll start off on the Pennington side, who's on a very solid run right now. Five-fight winning streak, most recently picking up a decision victory over Caitlin Vieira in a very, very close fight. Now, Raquel Pennington obviously had a opportunity at the title back, I believe it was UFC 228. I could be off on that number, but regardless, she went up against Amanda Nunes and got absolutely battered uh, for the majority of that matchup and loses that fight. That was the last loss on her record, and since then, she's been absolutely flawless and looking improved every single time out. It's impressive to see how far she's come since her contender, or sorry, her ultimate fighter days, where I really thought that she was going to be a quick in and out in the UFC, but she's managed to improve to a level that she's pretty you know a, a very solid fighter all around she has solid striking good fight iq and has the ability to mix it up and take opponents to the ground and grind them out from that top position as well she's 35 years old so she's definitely getting up there in age but she is looking as best as she's, we've ever seen her in the past her opponent this week in mara bueno silva is one of those meme fighters in the fact that they just Sometimes they don't do enough, but then when they finally decide to turn it on, they're able to produce finishes. That's what happened in the Stephanie Eger fight. That's what happened in the Lena Landsberg fight, although she was dominating that fight and knew that her best path to victory in that fight was to drag the fight to the ground and showcase her jiu-jitsu dominance, and that's what she was able to do. The Holly Holm fight. She got outgrinded in that first round, but managed to snatch up a beautiful choke to make Holly Holm tap in that second round which is obviously a no contest now as Silva popped, was popped by USADA. Apparently it wasn't severe enough that the UFC had decided to put her into a title fight regardless. But she she's just one of those fighters that, like, she's only 10-2-1, so she has a decent record. But it's like she can give up a lot of rounds. She can give up, give up a lot of minutes. But she will just come out of nowhere and pull off a finish of some sort. You know, she was unable to do that against Minofiro, but we saw her gun shy a lot. We didn't see her go for takedowns often at all. That was the big question mark there. If she can hone it in mentally, she can be a very dangerous opponent. Now in this matchup against Pennington, Pennington could likely be the busier fighter. She'll likely win the majority of this fight just off of her volume and activity alone. But I feel like Boyno Silva could just land that one shot that makes Pennington question herself. That opens up a club and sub opportunity for Buenos Silva. And that's kind of what I'm going to lean on here. I'm not taking the minus 155. I don't want to take the chalk on a fighter that I believe is finish reliant in this matchup. The under 4.5 is currently minus 105, but I think the majority of finishing equity in this matchup is based on Buenos Silva. So I'm going to actually look to take the Buenos Silva inside the distance. Buenos Silva by submission, probably. I'll look at those lines. If we can get that anywhere around plus 150 inside the distance, I'm taking that shot. I think she wins this fight by finish. That's the main thing. The best way you can play this fight, in my opinion, is if you have those special FanDuel or DraftKings props where you can pick Pennington decision only, I think that's a good spot for Pennington. I don't know what the lines are, but just straight up as a pick, 
I think that would be the spot or Bueno Silva finish only. I'd be very surprised if Pennington is the one finishing Bueno Silva. I just don't see that happening. I'm going to say Bueno Silva inside the distance. That would likely end up being a bet too. But I think she wins this fight. How long does she hold on to the title? I'm not sure. Maybe Juliana Pena can get a crack at the title again and she can utilize her superior wrestling to grind out Bueno Silva. That's possible as well. But for this weekend, I think Bueno Silva's Finish heavy style will allow her to break, frustrate, sorry, frustrate, then break Pennington and eventually open up a finishing opportunity. Give me Bueno Silva inside the distance. I'm going to call it by submission. All right. Main event time here. We got the middleweight strap on the line as we have Sean Strickland coming in as a minus 145 favorite. He takes on Drickus Duplessis, who comes in at plus 125. Now, Sean Strickland pulled off, I believe it was the third or second biggest upset of the year. If you guys watch my top 10 underdogs that cast in 2023 video, he found himself somewhere in that top three range, top maybe even four. But Sean Strickland pulled off one of the biggest upsets last year where he absolutely dismantled Israel Adesanya and won that fight on the scorecards four to one. He was close to even finishing Adesanya in that first round by putting together a barrage of punches that hurt Adesanya. But luckily Adesanya stayed safe enough, stayed on his bicycle and was able to survive that first round. But Strickland's awkward striking style of staying his, staying in his opponent's face, utilizing awkward striking defense, rolling with shots, and just pressuring opponents has been so hard for fighters to deal with. The only guys that were able to solve it were, as of late, were Alex Pereira, who obviously knocked him out, and Jared Cannonier in a fight that probably should have been uh, Sean Strickland's anyway. But shout out to Sean Strickland. Ended 2022 on an unfortunate loss by Jared Cannonier. Takes on a short notice fight for the first fight of 2023, uh, first event of 2023, and defeats Nasruddin Imovov. Picks up another big win by finishing Abis Magomedov and then taking the opportunity to fight Israel Adesanya in a fight that should have been Drikas Duplessis. Duplessis obviously having to sit on the sideline to recover from injury. And Strickland makes the most of it and wins the middleweight title. Insane. He's a BJJ black belt, if I'm not mistaken, as well, but we don't often see him looking to take fights to the ground. He's fine with just using his striking style. He strikes in fights like he strikes when he's sparring guys, and he does it so often. That's why he looks so comfortable when he's in the cage. It's all down to can his durability continue to hold on because we saw Alex Pereira expose it a little bit, but if he can continue to roll with shots, eat a couple shots while still moving forward, it's going to be hard for a lot of opponents to deal with that pressure style that he brings to the table. His opponent this weekend, Drictus Duplessis, is no stranger to finishing his opponents as he's finished 19 of his 20 wins. The guy is insane with the amount of power he's able to dish out to his opponents. He's obviously on a tremendous winning streak right now. I believe it's eight-fight winning streak. He's undefeated in the UFC, and he's finished his last three opponents, Darren Taylor, Derek Brunson, and most recently Robert Whitaker back in July and he relies on his freakish athleticism and power and explosivity to land big shots on his opponents and put them away. The thing that set up the finish over Robert Whitaker was a perfectly timed and placed jab that seemed to drop and wobble Whitaker. And then from there, Duplessis was able to follow up and stalk him and finish him with big shots. But the big knock on him has been his cardio. It looks like he's huffing and puffing by the end of fights, but for some reason, he always manages to find a way to kick it into the next year and find that explosivity and find a way to finish his opponents. But this is going to be the first true test in my opinion. Well, not true. He's had some legitimate tests in the past, but this is going to be a legitimate test, again, against a guy in Sean Strickland who loves to use cardio and pace to his advantage. 
If Sean Strickland does not get finished in the first two rounds here, what will Duplessis look like having to move backwards for the majority of this fight, having to just throw at wind or even just throw and not do much damage to Strickland while eating shots in return? How is that going to fare from him? I don't think it fares that well. So a lot of this relies on the fact of, will Sean Strickland be able to eat a couple shots? That's a big if. That's a big, big if. You know, if you like Duplessis here, taking him to win inside the distance or by knockout is likely the best way to get the best juice for your, or squeeze, best juice for your squeeze, whatever it's called, <laughs> that term. But I think that Sean Strickland weathers the storm. I think Sean Strickland walks him down. I think Sean Strickland batters him, touches him up for the first couple of rounds, turns it up in the fourth and fifth rounds and possibly finds a finish. But it's so hard to be so confident against a guy like du- Duplessis who has been as successful as he has. His last losses to a guy named Roberto Soldich. If you guys are unfamiliar with Soldich, he is one of the best fighters that KSW has ever produced. He beat him, or Duplessis beat him, and then Soldich got his revenge in his next matchup, which eventually put Duplessis in a different promotion. But, like, it takes a high-level fighter to beat Duplessis. And Strickland, at this point in time, is a high-level fighter, which is why I'm still going to take Strickland to win this fight. Minus 145 is not a bad line for a fighter that I believe has the cardio advantage, the output advantage, and the ability to make Duplessis or or put Duplessis into uncomfortable positions that he might not be able to bat it back from. So give me Sean Strickland, round four, round five, TKO, and still. There you guys go. Breakdowns on all UFC 297 fights. It's going to be a busy week this week as we also have KSW90 Quick Picks coming out on the Patreon page. But I'll also be dropping a unified 55 breakdown for you guys either Thursday or Friday before that fight just to get a little bit information on these guys before possibly going to the fights. Check it out. It's going to be a great night. Looking for a fight as well. So if you're in town, make sure you guys check it out. But yeah, ton of great content coming coming your way. Uh, tomorrow, top three lock of the night uh, predictions or candidates. Wednesday, top three dog of the night candidates. Thursday, quick picks video as well as the free parlay video. Friday, top three prop bets. Three best prop bets, I should say, as well as a unified breakdown video. And then Saturday, after the fights, post-event, immediate reaction, recap. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the last one that I just dropped and I'm looking forward to continuing to improve it every single time out. All right. I feel like I've been talking forever. Appreciate all the love. Appreciate all the support. I'll see you guys again tomorrow for the top three lock of the night candidates for UFC 297. Peace.